Last week, we have seen over the last few weeks that Paul wants to help the church members around Ephesus, not necessarily specifically in Ephesus, but in that region, this probably was a circular letter that would go around, and Paul just wants to give the church members the big picture. It's not enough, as many, in, many Christians say today, I just want my sins to be forgiven, and I want to go to heaven. And if that's the beginning and end of your understanding of the plan of salvation and what Christianity is, then Paul is giving you a different picture this morning. He wants to give them the big picture. He wants them to... He starts with praise in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3. He starts with praise, and we spent a few weeks talking about what this praise is, this doxology, this, this long exclamation of glory for the things that God has done, that He chose us, that He, that he wanted to give us all these spiritual blessings. Do you remember some of these verses, verse 3 and verse 4? The spiritual blessings and the heavenlies that God gives to the Christian, not that God will give, but that God has given. The one point you need to cl clearly conclude from these, this first chapter is that this is like, like latent potential within you. It's not that you and I have to fast and beg heaven to give us more blessings. Now, there may be a time when we need to come apart, fast, pray, and seek the face of God. But that's not the emphasis in chapter 1 of, of, of Ephesians. It's that God has done these things for you. This is who you are in Christ. That you are chosen. These are part of the blessings. That you are predestined, verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 1. That you have received this redemption, verse 7, the forgiveness of sins. And then last week, we ended up on how God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Now, I tell you, if I was in the pew listening to this for the first time, I would have spent the rest of the week trying to understand that. This is how powerful this material is. This is some of the most glorious material anywhere in the Bible. In fact, I don't think you can find a place. Even Romans 8 does not outdo Ephesians chapter 1. Here he's able to summarize it in such a concise way. You get more words in Romans. You get probably, possibly, a different picture in Romans where he talks about, uses some of the same language. And in Colossians too. There's a lot of similarities between the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians. But there's nothing, surely there's nothing more glorious than what we have here before us this morning. Anyway, in the last few weeks, those are some of the things that we covered. Marked in Him with a seal, verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. So he ends up this praise section, and now he goes into a prayer section. So the title of my sermon this morning is what? You've all read the bulletin? You know, I really struggle with some of these titles. 
I don't even like titles because no sooner do I give Karen a title than I think of a better one. And she's already done the bulletin. So titles freak me out. And I also struggle with children's stories too. So just know that. Pray for your pastor. Put that on your prayer list. Father, help Pastor Terry to feel comfortable and give him good source material to do children's stories. Hey, I need that help. I'm telling you, I need that help. So God, Paul goes from praise, the first 14 verses, to prayer. So the title of my sermon is, What is on Your Prayer List? And I doubt very much that there's anyone, including myself, unfortunately, I hate to say that as pastor, but there's probably nobody in this room who has a prayer list like Paul's prayer list. Because this man had such a good understanding of what God has and is and will do for his people. He had a great understanding of that. I don't know if it was because he had been in the third heaven where God is, in paradise, seeing things that are really uh, things that he couldn't truly share with us. I don't know if it's because he's met the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ has given this man Bible studies. I don't fully understand where this man got all of his understanding from, except to say God obviously gave it him. And we have, praise God, we have it in written form, and we can try and understand it and wrestle it. Remember what I said right at the beginning, Paul has not written this material to try and straighten out the members, to try and deal with major problems in the church, but rather to challenge the church members to know God better. Don't you really want to know God not just know about God, but know Him in a personal, intimate way. Not just to know about God to say, oh yes, He'll forgive me my sins. Yes, I'm going to heaven. That's a very limited way to know God. It's better than nothing, for sure. But it's not very comprehensive. And what we have in these verses is a much broader, more comprehensive picture so let's look at these verses. Verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So what we're going from is praise, thanksgiving, prayer requests. Now, before we even, before we even jump in with two feet, is there something that we can learn about that in our prayer life? Because most of us rush into the presence of God without any praise, without any thanksgiving. We just rush into His presence with all of our requests. The way that Paul puts his material together is just as interesting as the things he says. Look for his method. Look for his style. Why does he do things and express things the way that he does? So a good rule of thumb in your prayer life is praise, thanksgiving. Have we got anything to praise God about this morning? What, what have we got to thank God about? Well, you just go from verse 3 to verse 14 to make a list. 
Heavenly Father, who should we pray to? People ask me this. Who, who are we supposed to pray to? Pray to the Father, pray to the Son, pray to the Holy Spirit. Who are we supposed to pray to? Je- the disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. How did Jesus teach them? Our Father, who art in heaven. So this, this passage, this whole passage, is directed from the Father. The Father is mentioned in the first chapter. The Son, obviously, is mentioned in the first chapter. And the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the first chapter. That is how the Bible writers talk of the Godhead. They don't, they don't write and say, God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, and make it your third belief system of the 28. The Bible is not a systematic theology. But that's the way that the Bible often will talk about God, sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Holy Spirit. All of them are mentioned. All of them have this one purpose, which is to redeem the human race. And you are part of that if you've believed in Jesus Christ and you've been chosen and predestined by Him. And we're going to deal briefly this morning about your calling, how God has called you to himself. Okay, so he goes from praise to prayer. I keep asking, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, now he could have just left it at that, but he doesn't. He says, the glorious Father may give you the Spirit, small s, or big S. We want to go with the big S this morning. The Holy Spirit. I feel more comfortable with that. The Holy Spirit may give you the spirit of wisdom and what else? Revelation. Now, does God give us the gift of wisdom or the spirit of wisdom and the gift of revelation so that we can become Anderson Smart Alex. No. Why does, then the question is, then why does he give us, why should we ask for this wisdom and revelation? What do we need it for? To what? To know him. Most, maybe one of the most important four-letter words in the Bible. To know him. Now, We're going to deal for briefly with this idea of knowing God. My question is, how well do you know God? How well do you know God? Do you know God as uh, an idea, a philosophy? Do you know God personally, intimately? I was reading about one of my professors at Andrews University. He's probably retired now. Um... I'm trying to think of his name. It'll come to me. Really, really smart guy. And I was reading about when he was a student in the dormitory at Andrews University. I think it was Andrews. And he was in some kind of Bible study group. Some of you have small Bible study groups that you belong to. And probably as a young man, he had his study group there. And he'd been reading his Bible, and he'd been reading about how God talks to people. Moses, for example, or some other Bible prophet. And so he asked the group, does God talk with you? Whoa. 
They didn't quite know what to do with that. But maybe the Holy Spirit had planted that idea in his mind, but obviously something was stirring up in this young man's life. He wasn't saved at that point in time. He was searching. Some of you this morning will be in the search mode. Some of you will be in the found mode. And of course, Paul is writing this material to people who he believes are in Christ. So we need to remember that. But the, young, but the young man is searching. He's probing. Everyone goes away for vacation. He stays there, and this is his time with God. And he gives this beautiful, brief experience where God just reached down and called that young man to himself. He surrendered and was just covered with the peace of God. I heard, I saw something on TV, Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson, most of you know Pat Robertson. He has a religious TV program. Can't remember what it's called. He had a lady on there who was um, a real druggie. She took the stuff. She sold the stuff. She lived for drugs. And she kept getting in trouble with the, pre, with the police. I wonder why. Constantly in trouble with the police. In the end, she gets a prison sentence. I think it was 13 years. While she's in prison, she's anything but the model prisoner. She's butting heads with everyone. She's not a nice person to know. She's fighting. She's struggling. What she doesn't know, and I don't know if anyone in that prison knew, is that really she's fighting against God. Isn't that right? People that live for stuff like that are fighting against God. They may not know it. People around them may not know it. But Christians should know that. So in the end, they put her in solitary confinement. She's such a tr troublemaker. And there she is in this, I don't know if you can even call it a cell, but she's with the concrete. She's with the urine. It's as low as you can go as a prisoner. And that's when God reached down and got the attention of this lady and called her to himself. And after God, in his amazing power, did that, then the section of the prison that she was in was now called the God block. Why? Because she's full of the love of God. She's full of the Holy Spirit. She's sharing Jesus with everyone around her. They're all having Bible studies. And so they call it the God block. And now you can see how you can probably... See this on the internet, too, if you want to. I'm trying to remember her name. I'm not, you notice I'm not good on names. Um, but there she is, just smiling, just beaming. God has saved her. She has the life of God within her. And what that, la what that lady now needs to learn, I'm not sure how long she's going to be a Christian, is like these, these church members in Ephesus, is, well, now, how do I grow 
how do I really get to know this God in a more personal, intimate way? And so he says there in verse 17, I keep asking this glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Grab a Bible. We want to know what it means to know God. We're not going to talk about knowing God in an intellectual way, in a conceptual way. Be very, very careful as a Seventh-day Adventist. We read ourselves into the truth. Well, there's an element of, of truth to that statement, but it can be very much misunderstood. Christianity is a divine encounter before it's anything else. You are not saved by the information that you have. You're saved by who you know personally, intimately. And that comes through very clear in John 17. Take a Bible, look at John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed. Now remember what we're looking at. We're trying to understand this knowing God. And we only have just a moment to do it. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. That they may what? Know you. This is eternal life. That they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Righteous Father, verse 25, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. So this know and knowing is all the way through John 17. And you can find it in numerous places in the Bible. In the King James, those of you that are using a King James Bible, when it says a man knows a woman, what is it talking about? It's talking of intimacy. It's talking of closeness. It's talking of the sexual union. So when it says we should know God, it's telling us something of our union with Him, of our relationship with Him. And what Paul is saying to these church members is, praise God you believe in, in Jesus. Praise God that you are saved. I don't stop praising and thanking God because this is so amazing. But now I want you to go deeper. Now I really want you to know God in a more direct, personal, intimate way. So it seems to me, at least, we should get that much out of it. I need the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. How could anybody possibly know that God is a God of love? That God will truly forgive you? How can you know that unless God reveals it? None of us. The Greeks tried it. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, these type of brilliant thinkers tried to figure out God. And God allowed in His wisdom Last few weeks, we talked about purpose and the plan of God. In the plan of God, in the purpose of God, God allowed the Greeks to do their thing, the Romans to do their things, and great civilizations to do their things. Let them come. Let them put on in the marketplace of ideas all of their ideas of God. And then Jesus comes in the fullness of time to reveal what God is really like. So here, in the verse... 
that you may know him better. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The eyes of your heart, this shows this is not just a conceptual intellectual thing. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, there it is again, the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance for the saints. The call is dealing with the past. The inheritance is dealing with the future. Most of Paul's time here is going to be spent, and our time as well, on the present, the power of God, which he talks of in verse 19. But first, the call of God. You may have thought, as that lady in the prison thought, that she was calling on God. God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? God, you must exist. God, if you do exist, you reveal, reveal yourself to me. I know that I did that at 20 years of age. Many of you have done that too. So are we not really calling upon God? Yes, but he called you first before you called him. God came calling first. When we spoke about being chosen, didn't I choose God? Yes, you did. But first he chose you. When did he choose me? I don't remember that. Well, Obviously not, before this world was made. These are some of the mysteries of the will of God, the plan and the purpose of God, that Paul, through Paul, God is making clear to these members in Ephesus, and that he wants us to understand this morning too. So in the past, God called us, praise God, we responded to that call, didn't you? Anybody been called by God this morning? just a few of you. Wow. I better drop this sermon and preach another one for the ungodly, for those that are outside of Christ. How many of you have been called by God? We are supposed to glory in this. We are to put two hands up and move our feet and our legs, and some of you are to do cartwheels down the aisle. This is how glorious this is. That's what Paul's trying to get over to us. Open your mind. Open the eyes of your heart. I remember at Carmichael, one of the church members made such an impression on me. And he said, Terry, is this all there is? He'd had his Adventism up to here. And he was blah. No energy, no passion, no life of God flowing through him. Does it mean he's lost? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying he was not the Energizer Bunny. Paul is going to speak in verse 19 of God's energy, God's power flowing through us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So realize you have been called. God drew you to himself, convicted you of sin. You repented of that sin. You were regenerated, a very important doctrine. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must can you see what I'm trying to say, Nicodemus? You must be born again. It's not about being religious. It's not about being good. It's not about eating the right foods. It's not about going to church on the right day. It's about the life of God in the soul of man. And it took Nicodemus a couple of years to grasp that. But praise God, he eventually did. When he saw Christ hanging up on the cross. So we were called by God, the past. What about the future? How will the story end up? How do you know that there's going to be a good conclusion to your story? Can you possibly know that ahead of time? That's what the whole idea 
of inheritance is about. And so he says there in verse 18, after speaking of the past, the calling, he talks of the future, the glorious inheritance in the saints. So, what is your inheritance? Now, the Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. So, there is definitely an element of mystery. It could be talking of your immortality. Somebody I asked this morning said it's talking of our eternal life. It's probably a term that can, can mean many things the glory that you're going to enter. In fact, we use that term, don't we? We say the past is your justification. We sometimes talk of justification that way. God justified you in the past. He did that. He made you right with Himself. And then we talk of the future. God's going to glorify you. So all of that is part, part of the inheritance. When Jesus Christ was uh, raised from the dead, I've said to you before that his, or his death on the cross and His resurrection is your death, your death to sin, your resurrection into the new life. And I think most of you kind of understand that. But where, where you have trouble is when we get to the inheritance idea. So was Jesus' death your death? Yes, Pastor. Was Jesus' resurrection your resurrection? Yes, Pastor. Was Jesus' ascension your ascension? Yes, Pastor. Was Jesus' inheritance where He's at the right hand of God? Your inheritance? Whoa, now you're getting, you're taking this a bit too far, Pastor. We're talking about Jesus Christ. God can't possibly love us like He loves Jesus Christ, can He? Yes, He can. Now you're catching it. So His inheritance is your inheritance. You are in Him. It's the union between God and man. And what is His is yours. Does it mean that I suddenly become God? No. You will always, through the rolling aeons of eternity, be the creature. But you are not just any creature. You are part of the human race, but more importantly, you are a redeemed human being. Do you not know, Paul says, that you will judge angels? So we can't even possibly begin to grasp the implications fully of this inheritance. And yet it's stressed over and over in the Bible. We even talk of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? Because we want the story to have a good end. We want Jesus to come and make everything right. So that's all part of the future inheritance. We have to move on. Verse 19, And His incomparably great power for us who believe. Now here's the present. We talked of the past, the calling. We talked briefly of the future, the inheritance. But what about the present? Don't just give me pie in the sky. What's Jesus actually doing now? Well, here it's, taught, it's spoken of in terms of power, in terms of energy. That power is like the working of His mighty strength. So I want to ask you, 
What's the most powerful thing, maybe it happened last night, that you've ever seen, that you've ever experienced? What's the most powerful thing? I know that when I went to Niagara, actually I was a bit disappointed at first because I had something in my head which was even bigger than Niagara. So I I went, oh, is, is that what the big deal is about? But then I just stayed there for a while and just kind of soaked it in. Of course, the spray was hitting me and had all the visual effects and all that kind of stuff. And then, then, yep, this is pretty powerful stuff. And I suppose if, if you and I could be transported into space and we, sit, we saw a couple of galaxies hitting one another, that, don't you think that would be pretty impressive? Maybe creating this universe is a power, very powerful thing creating this world. Why did, why did Paul, why does Paul talk about the resurrection? That's what he's going to talk of. I haven't read the text yet. Or did I read the text? I can't remember. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he did what? Raised him from the dead. Why does he use the resurrection as an example of this tremendous power of God? Well, think of Jesus. He's been stuck upon a cross. The sins of the world have been laid upon him. The devil is ecstatic that this Jesus Christ, who he has taunted for 30, 33 years, is now dead. They put him in a tomb. They put the seal over it. We talked about the seal in verses 13 and 14. Some seals can be broken, by the way. The one in 13 and 14 cannot be broken, the seal of the Holy Spirit. But the seal over Jesus could be broken. And then and it seems like total despair. I mean, what, what, a, what an end to a glorious life. Here was this man who, who called himself the Messiah, who the hopes of so many were in him, seemed to do no harm to anybody, did a lawful lot of good for many, many people. What a lousy end to a wonderful life. That's the way the disciples concluded it. The story was over for them. Bad ending. Don't like that ending. Like happy endings. Okay, and God must like happy endings too, because the text tells us in verse 20 that God did what? He raised him from the dead. Even corruption could not take over the body of Christ. Death and hell had no hold over him. And if there's one thing that human beings, church members, Ephesus church members, Anderson church members, if there's one thing that we really have a problem with, it's death and the problem of evil. And Jesus Christ conquered them both. He conquered death. How do you know, Pastor? Because he rose from the dead. And he appeared later in the book of Revelation to John and said, death and hell has no power over me. I have the keys to Hades and to these places. So Jesus conquered that. And so Paul uses the resurrection as an example of the tremendous power of God over these tremendous forces when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So the resurrection is an example of this tremendous power of God. 
This exaltation and enthronement of Christ is a tremendous example of the power of God. But here's the point. Get to the point. Okay, I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to get there. This is a lot of material to cover. I'm trying to get there. The point is that that same power that raised Jesus Christ, amen, hallelujah, praise God, if there is no resurrection, then your faith is vain. Everything's down the tube. And this exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same power of God that did that is the same power that lives in you, the believer. And the question to ask this morning is, do you understand that? Have the eyes of your heart, have they been opened so that you can begin to grasp these truths? The emphasis here is not going to the upper room and pleading and begging with God to pour out His Spirit. And I'm sure there is a need of doing things like that occasionally in our Christian lives. The, the church needs to do that collectively. But the emphasis is on the present, what God has actually done for you when He called you and made Him right with Himself. In other words, there is latent spiritual potential in every one of us who's a believer in Christ. There is power, there is energy that is untapped. And God wants us to become like Anderson, energize the bunnies. Not busy running around the neighborhood just to be seen to be busy or because somebody has wound us up and let us go. But busy for Him, busy to build up His kingdom, and more importantly, busy to know Him. That's the emphasis, to know Him. Before these folks are ever asked to do anything, before Paul speaks in chapter 4 about the spiritual gifts that God has given His people, about how husbands should love wives, wives should love husbands, about how to raise children, and, and even before how to fight the devil in chapter 6. Paul speaks about knowing God. Who you are in Christ and then knowing Him personally, intimately. So this power is where the emphasis seems to be in these verses. Power that raised Christ from the dead, exalted Him to the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, also in the one to come, God placed all things under His feet, appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Paul wants us to know God in a way where we experience the fullness of God. Now, let me tell you something, folks. This is pretty rare among Seventh-day Adventists to deal with these issues. I don't know why it's so rare, but it is. We lay the emphasis on knowing in a propositional, intellectual, conceptual way. We even have 28 beliefs to show that we're doing that. And of course, that has its place, it has its importance, but it has no importance in comparison with knowing God personally.
And if you and I are going to be successful in sharing the kingdom of God, seeing God's kingdom expand in our neighborhood, in our territory, then people have to see God living within us. It's not enough to talk about God, but it is important that you can say, He lives within me. You might do it by saying, Oh yeah, I used to take those drugs. Oh, I used to be boozing all the time. I used to be fornicating all over the neighborhood. I don't know how you're going to package it, but somehow your story has to say, but God did this. Lay the focus on Him, on His power, on His glory. Another implication by way of conclusion is this whole chapter, and indeed the whole book, but especially the first three chapters of the book, should give us a tremendous confidence and assurance and a sense of security. It's as though God, when I'm looking at the methods, the plans, and the purposes of God, it's as though God really tries hard through the prophets to tell us who we are before He ever tells us what we are to do. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, I believe it's all the way through the Bible. First, He redeemed them out of Egypt. Then He says, keep my commandments. He, he, he redeems, He frees, takes us from bondage. Then He tells us what to do. And He doesn't just say, go do it. He gives us the power, the ability, His very life within us so that we are able to do what He has. Now, the assurance of salvation, which is like a, an implication of this whole passage the security that we should have as Seventh-day Adventists is kind of rare among Seventh-day Adventists. The reason for that is because we don't spend enough time dwelling on this type of material. Listen to what Ellen White says. This will be my closing statement. She likens the assurance of salvation and links it to the story of the prodigal son. Now, obviously, that's not our sermon this morning, but it, but it, but it is interesting the way that she handles this. She says, the devil hates this assurance. What assurance? The assurance that you are God's and God is with you. The confidence, the security that you should have in knowing Him. That's what the devil hates. He wants to fill us with uneasiness. Any of you feel spiritually uneasy? Insecurity, perplexity, grief of mind. Every repentant soul may be certain of God's love and acceptance. Satan is ready to steal away the blessed assurances of God. So everything I have said this morning, everything that Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 1, the devil is going to do everything he can to get that stuff out of your head. Go out, go out, go out and be busy. Busy in the wrong way, and you'll forget all about this stuff. Maybe you'll have forgotten it before you threw with the potluck meal. These are the way, many, many ways, that the devil works. He desires to take away every glimmer of hope, every ray of light from the soul, but you must not 
permit him to do this. In other words, he does not have the ability to do that unless you permit him to do that. You, if you permit him to do that, you will remain an insecure, anxious type of Seventh-day Adventist, never quite knowing whether you've done enough to please your Heavenly Father. Always feeling that you're on trial before Him. Always feeling that He's holding the microscope up to you just to find some, another flaw in you. So realize the strategies of the devil. That's what Ellen White's helping us to do here. This is from Steps to Christ, by the way, page 53. Do not give ear to the tempter, but say, Jesus has died that I might live, especially when you fall into sin. This is when when he thinks he's got you, and he may have you at that point. He can't take away your salvation, by the way. He has no power to do that. But he sure can make you a sad Adventist instead of what? That's getting old, isn't it? I have to stop saying that. A glad Adventist. Jesus died that I might live. He loves me and wills that I should, that I sh- not that I should perish. I have a compassionate Heavenly Father. And though, although I have abused His love, procrastination, not taking these things seriously, not spending time with God, sin, whatever, although I have abused His love, though the blessings He has given me have been squandered, I will arise Here's where the prodigal son comes in. And go to my father and say, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And the parable tells us how the wanderer will be received. What's God going to do? What's the father going to do? Shrug his shoulders and say, I don't care. You've made your own bed, sleep in it. Is that the way God reacts? When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran, fell on his neck, and kissed him. And if we can say that God loves us as he loves his son, and when we can see from Scripture all of the glorious things that the son inherited from the father, then we should never ever be insecure, uncertain Christians. We should be confident of our father's love. We should be confident that the one who has begun the work within us will do what? Will finish it. Let's give God the glory by doing that and practicing that in our lives. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for these tremendous spiritual blessings given to your chosen predestined people, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But even though all of those things have happened, Lord, still we need the eyes of our hearts to be opened to see the glorious potential of you through your Holy Spirit living through us. Lord, I pray that you'll fill your anoint each one of us here this morning to grasp and to understand these things and to enjoy our relationship with you and to glory and revel in the good things that you have done, are doing, and will do in the future. We praise you and give you the glory in Jesus' holy name. Amen.